Father in heaven, <clears throat> as we open your word today, we pray that your spirit uh, will, will enlighten our minds, and it really is all about your spirit today. Help us to hear and understand. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to go ahead and leave my mask on today as I have been uh, within the vicinity of people. I'm, I'm symptom-free myself, but uh, I have been around this for an extended period now, so we're, I'm going to go ahead and leave this on today. But what we're going to do today, we're pretty much just going to read the Bible today. Because the Bible is going to tell us what we need to know. And I'm only going to make a few comments. <clears throat> and we're going to read in some different places. Uh, really keying on, on three separate passages. And we're going to start in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. So I encourage you, I'll be using the uh, translation that's in the pew in front of you there. The English Standard Version. And I encourage you to take the Bible, <clears throat> particularly today, because we're going to be reading a lot. And if you're at home joining us, you can grab one from there or pull it up on your device or whatever you like. But we're starting today in Matthew 28. And the title today is very relevant. The title today is, When Jesus Said Go, He Also Said Wait. Matthew chapter 28 Beginning in verse 1, now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love that part. I love that part. The angel comes down and he pushes this stone away. If you go to the book of Mark, the, the women were actually discussing among themselves, who's going to roll away the stone? This thing is huge. Well, the angel came down, moved the stone, and then just sat on it. Kind of like a, a victorious, take a seat. And he sits down there to wait for the ladies to arrive. Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. You will recall that they had guards placed there because there was a fear that the disciples would come and steal the body and claim that he had risen from the dead. And this deception, they said, would be worse than the first. But the guards at the sight of the angel trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. He didn't say that to the guards. To the guards, they were right to be afraid because they were out of line. They were doing the wrong master's business and they were right to fear the angel. But to the women, he said, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. <clears throat> then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Those two don't go together very often, do they? Fear and great joy. But I think if we had a little more experience with the literal presence and power of God we would have a little more experience of the emotion of fear and great joy simultaneously within our lives. 
with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. It's all kind of interesting here. The angel says, go to Galilee, he'll meet you there. But then Jesus is like, no, I'm not waiting. I'm going to pop in on them. I, I love these ladies. I'm popping in on them. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So in this Matthew text, Jesus continually is telling them to go, 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 go and do, go to Galilee, go. I will meet you there. We jump down now to verse 16 in Matthew 28 and we continue now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's kind of an interesting inclusion there. I think maybe a better way of saying it was some were still overwhelmed at the notion of it and their rational mind had not aligned yet with the reality that they saw. And because of this, they struggled Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, now you know this passage well, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, this is the, the statement of ultimate reality. Jesus says, I've accomplished the purpose and now all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you want to read a passage that talks about the implications of that statement Jesus makes, go to Revelation chapter 5 and read the scene in Revelation chapter 5 and you will see the implications that now this authority rests on Jesus and what it enables going forward. But we'll stay here for right now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a fabulous passage. It's the marching orders of the Christian church. And it says, because all authority is given to me, I'm telling you to go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I command you. And lest you be fearful, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A powerful word. An inspirational word. The basis is the, is the full authority of Jesus. And he sends us out. Jesus clearly says, go. But Jesus also says something else. And for that, we need to turn over to the book of Luke. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24. Now, you know we have the different gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them describes different realities and different facts about the story of the life of Jesus. Luke's, I think, is one of the most interesting because Luke himself was not an eyewitness of any of the events of Jesus' life. 
Now, he is, in fact, an eyewitness of many of the events in the story of Paul. But he is not an eyewitness of Jesus' life. At the point when all this was taking place, he was living in, in what modern-day Turkey, what we would call Turkey today. He was living over there, had a whole different life, a whole other thing going on. The interesting thing about Luke is that he got his information like a reporter. He did research, and I've, I've even speculated in my own mind, at the point where, where Paul comes back to Jerusalem and he ends up getting arrested and he spends the time in prison in Caesarea waiting and appeals to Rome and all that stuff plays out. At that point, Luke is identifying in the book of Acts as he writes the story, we did this, we did that. He was there. And it's been my speculation that it was during that sojourn, during that time, that Luke went around and interviewed the people around Jerusalem to gain the information by which he wrote his gospel. But he was not there himself. And it's interesting because he starts by saying, I took it upon myself to put together an orderly account. Kind of an interesting phrase there. As though perhaps Matthew, Mark, and John's account was something other than entirely orderly. But we'll leave that argument to them. But he says, I, I determined to put together an orderly account. Anyway, there's a lot of, of different nuance you get in the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And you read in different places. Matthew seems to key very strongly on, get up to Galilee, Jesus will meet you there. But nobody else really talks about that. The others talk about other encounters and other ways that Jesus appeared. And so Luke chapter 24, verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. What things were they talking about? Well, the section just before this is one of my favorite sections of the Bible. It's the story of the two that were journeying on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus comes along and walks with them. And, and it says in there, in one of the passages that drives me crazier than any other passage in the Bible, it says, as he walked along with them, he explained to him everything about the Messiah from the Old Testament. Okay, why did you just tell me that he said that? Why didn't you walk me through the study, Luke? Why didn't you give me every text that Jesus talked about? Yeah, thank you. But I know the answer to it, and I don't like it. Jesus has given me the answer. He says, go and find it yourself, because it's all there. And I will guide you in the same way as the men who walked on the road. He asks us to go and study for ourselves. But these two, after seeing Jesus and recognizing him, they run back to Jerusalem, and they tell them that they have seen the Lord. And that's where we jump in, verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. It is very difficult for us in any scenario to escape our assumptions of reality. So we can't be hard on them because if Jesus were to appear in this room right now, there would be a myriad of responses we would have. And I'm certain a couple of them would be startled and frightened. I don't know what else we might come up with, but at least those two. 
And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? You know, I guess we could pull that text out on a daily basis, right? Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? Then he said, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Now, why is this so important? Jesus is very clearly wanting to demonstrate to the disciples that he has risen from the dead and has risen in the form of human flesh. Now, it's glorified human flesh. It's the human flesh we will put on when Jesus comes again. Either we will take it up when we rise from the grave or we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye in the moment at the last trumpet. But it is human flesh. And this human flesh will continue to breathe air and to drink water and to eat food. And there will be bones and it will be solid and it will be who we are. And Jesus wants them to very clearly understand he is a part of their race, a part of our race forever. He is human. Now there's implications to this. One of those implications is he is now, in reality, the three-dimensional, time-based person like we are. And therefore, when he is in a place, he is not in another place. Now that seems kind of obvious. Yet it also introduces a problem. Because in Matthew 28, he said, I will be with you always, no matter where you go. So how can the Jesus who is in a place be everywhere? Well, this is part of the point of what we're getting to in our focus for this part of the year. Because there is a way. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And now here's another verse, another verse that I love. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I love that verse. And I pray that verse all the time. Lord, please open my mind to understand the scriptures. It's so easy for our minds to close and to what the Lord would speak to us. But he is able to open our minds that we can understand what we need to understand. I've been amazed in my life to see great scholars who have spent their life studying portions of Scripture who have almost zero saving knowledge as a result of their study. And then I compare them to the simplest person in a church. Not very educated, not considered wise in the ways of the world, yet such a knowledge of saving faith. Jesus is able to open our minds. It's not limited. 
He can teach us what we should know. Verse 46, And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So if you want to kind of look at this little passage here, this 46 through 47, it's kind of a summation of, of the Great Commission. Go therefore into all nations, teach the gospel, baptize, so forth. Jesus here is basically saying the same thing. Uh, the, the Christ would suffer and rise on the third day, and then repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed. That would lead to baptism. That would be teaching to, in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So here you see a parallel again. He's saying, go. This needs to be done. Verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Now verse 49. Notice this. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So let me tell you what I hear in this passage. I hear Jesus saying, go, but first stay. I want you to go, but first stay. Because you need to wait for the promise. Now that's kind of a cryptic reference. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What is he talking about? What is the promise? Well, this was our topic last Sabbath. We were in John chapter 14 last Sabbath, and that's the context where Jesus is talking to the disciples just before the crucifixion. And I'm going to go back there. We're going to go there briefly. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. We'll come back to that word. To be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So many of the things that are taking place in these other gospels are answered by this simple statement of Jesus. He is he's returning to the Father and when he does, he will ask the Father who will send the helper or other versions will say the advocate. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The word there in, in Greek is, is a form of, of parakletos, which means one who stands beside. And it typically is used in a legal context like an advocate, an attorney, who stands by your side and speaks for you. So this one that is going to be sent will stand by your side. He even says that. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. How is Jesus going to be everywhere now that he's in one place? Through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father who will come. And he refers to him as the Spirit of truth. Do you remember how in Luke here he says he, uh, that... Uh, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The way he does that is through the Holy Spirit. 
because he is the spirit of truth. And he comes to stand beside you and to be with you and in you. And you can receive that gift of the spirit because you've put your faith in Jesus. But now remember what he said to them. Wait until you've received the promise. Let's go back to Luke 24, verse 50. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now this is a very relevant thing. They've been told to wait, to stay in Jerusalem until they receive the promise. But what do they do while they wait? Well, we get a hint here in Luke 24. They were focused on worship. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple blessing God. They worshiped Jesus, blessing God, focused on worship. Now, now this is just a hint. We're going to get something clearer than this from the very same author who is going to write another version of this very same story. You see, it is believed that the author of Luke is the same as the author of Acts. And at the end of Luke, he gives a very short version of the ascension of Jesus. But interestingly, at the beginning of the book of Acts, he revisits the story from that very place. And he adds some detail. So let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That's actually a very interesting inclusion there because nowhere in the Gospels do we get a clear statement of how long Jesus was hanging around after he rose again. In Acts it says he hung around for 40 days. Verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he makes it very clear in the book of Acts that while they were given a great commission, they were told, before you go, you must wait until you've received the promise that the Father will send. Now, just looking at this, I think we can safely assume that apparently the baptism of the Holy Spirit is essential to Jesus' purpose for his church. But having made that statement, let me follow it up. Have we given this concept, this 
baptism of the Holy Spirit, this receiving of the Holy Spirit, have we given this the place it should be given in our teaching, in our practice, and in our expectations? Have we talked about the importance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Have we gone out in the power of the Spirit in all that we did? Do we even expect the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Or is it all just theory? Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Maybe sometime we'll, we'll spend some time on that question. It, uh, it's both disappointing and encouraging. Uh, they still don't get it. They're still not understanding entirely what's going on. They're still thinking there's some kind of earthly kingdom thing going to happen here. But Jesus doesn't let their folly get, them down, get him down, and that's good because he doesn't do that with us either. Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Have you ever asked Jesus a question and you feel a little bit like he said, you know what, yeah, that's not really, I'm not going to answer that. Sometimes it means the question is just crazy and we're, we really need to rethink our questions. Verse 8. And this is the important part. It's not important whether or not he's going to reestablish this kingdom in the sense you're thinking. But here's the important part. But you will receive power. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's going to make the Great Commission possible? Go ye therefore into all the world, but don't go before you receive power, because it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that this gospel will go to the world. Now, if I was to try to pick what I thought was most missing from the witness of most Christians and most churches, I would not choose sincerity. Because most of the churches I've been a part of and seen, and most of the Christians I've seen, are sincere. Oh, there's some hypocrites out there. There's some fakers out there. I get it. But there's a little less of that in our day because there's not pressure to be Christian anymore. Now there's pressure to not be Christian. So it's kind of done away with a lot of the fakers. If you're still around, you're here on purpose. So I don't think sincerity is our problem. Now we could be more sincere. We could do better. But I don't think sincerity is our primary problem. And if I were to try to pick what was most missing from the witness of most Christians and churches, I would not choose determination. Now, sometimes we falter, sometimes we give in, sometimes we get discouraged. But I've got to tell you, I have in my life encountered incredible determination on the part of God's people who keep showing up, who keep trying, who keep giving, who keep believing. Well, that's a pretty good mark for determination, I think. I don't think that's what's missing. And if I was to pick what was most missing 
from the witness of most Christians and, and most churches, it wouldn't be strategy. I've been to a million conference meetings where we talk about strategy. I've seen every strategy you can come up with. I've got books all over my shelves in my office that talk about strategy. Boy, we're, we're strategy people. So I don't think that's it. And if I was to pick what I thought was most missing from the witness of most Christians in most churches, I wouldn't even say love. Now, we don't do love perfectly. But we know we're supposed to, at least. And most of us are trying. We can do better. But I wouldn't say it's the thing most missing. If I had to pick what was most missing in the churches and Christians that I've known and met, it would be this. The presence of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, not power through government, not power through coercion, not power through shame, not power through intimidation, not power through fear. These are cheats that Christians through the ages have used because they sense something's missing. Why do we turn to government to enforce church law? Because something's missing. Why do we use fear to keep our young people in line? Because something's missing. Why do we use coercion or shame or intimidation? Because we know something's missing. These things are the cheats that Christians through the agents have used because they sensed there was something missing. But we must never use these cheats. And we never need to. Because Jesus has promised power from on high if we're ready to handle it. So I guess that begs the question, right? Scripture says that the Father will give the Spirit freely to those who ask, who seek it. And I believe also inherent in that is this idea of a people ready to handle that kind of heavenly power in their presence. So it begs the question, can we handle it? Well, let's go back to the disciples. How did they get ready to handle this power? There's a hint from Luke 24. They worshiped. And this concept of worship is one of the things we're going to be king on this year. We're going to be talking about worship and legitimate worship and its place in our lives. But, but there's more detail given in Acts chapter 1. So Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, as he went behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So the first point here is they're obedient to what they were told. Now I guess it's a little bit by default because they were near Jerusalem and that's what they were doing. But he said, stay in Jerusalem till this happens. So they returned to Jerusalem. Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these, notice this verse, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So if I was to summarize what the disciples did between the point when Jesus went up and the point of Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descends, I would summarize it this way. Worship, unity, and prayer. Worship, unity, and prayer. Could anything be more simple or more impossible? to achieve within a Christian community? Worship, unity, prayer. So simple, yet so hard. So, so before we wrap this up, I'm pretty sure we as Christians know Jesus is telling us to go make disciples of all nations. I think, I think we know this. But is he also saying, before you go, wait. What would wait look like? And are we willing to do what it takes to wait? Worship, unity, prayer. That's it, actually kind of interesting because we, we've talked about how we did this, uh, this pulse check last year and out of that came, came three subject areas where we believed we needed to focus as a people. And uh, the, the way we've expressed that is, is uh, worship, love one another, and Holy Spirit power. And that's kind of what has defined our course for the first part of this year. But, but really, interestingly, those three are, are that's pretty much worship, unity, and prayer, isn't it? Worship, same, same concept, same word. Love one another, that's key to the concept of unity as Christians, brothers, and sisters. Holy Spirit power, prayer, seeking the presence of God in our lives. I don't know about you, but it kind of looks to me that, that through the voices of this community as we expressed what we needed, what we said last year is, yes, we want to go, but before that, we need to wait. It kind of looks like Jesus has set us on the course here. Holy Spirit power, unity, and worship.
But here's, here's what's tough about that. For that really to happen, we really would need in the course of this year, varying, varying times and varying ways, to enter into a season of intentional intensity. We, we can't do this and just keep rolling along. We can't, we can't enter into worship if we don't maintain in our hearts a heart of worship. I mean, it helps a lot when we've got the band here and they're doing a great song and, and you know, music really speaks to the heart and it, and it really breaks down barriers. And, and I can stand right there and I can have an amazing feeling in that moment that is genuine and real and powerful. But if I don't let that feeling go with me for the rest of my week, if I don't intentionally find places in my week where I am intentionally worshiping on my own and I'm leaving it simply to what happens when I walk in here on Sabbath morning, it will be haphazard at best. That's not a season of intensity. That's not what the disciples did when they went back to Jerusalem. They didn't hang out at the temple on Sabbath and then do whatever they wanted the rest of the week. So how do we even do that? Everybody's busy. We don't even live close together, most of us. What does it take? I don't have all the answers today and I won't have all the answers because these are decisions we have to make in our own lives. But I will tell you this that you can take away from this today. A time of daily Bible reading and prayer is critical if we want to enter into a season of intentional intensity. And nobody can keep you from doing that. COVID doesn't stop that. There's no rules. You probably have a Bible. If you don't, you can take one from here. But you probably have 40. Nothing to stop you. The only thing that could really stop us from entering into a season of intensity is we don't really want it. Or we want something else more. We're going to continue with this topic of the Holy Spirit and Lord willing, and I, I have learned to add the phrase Lord willing to just everything over the last two years because nothing seems to go the way I plan it anymore. But Lord willing, uh, my wife Alicia will be here next week and she will speak for us on this topic of waiting. Waiting when we don't know the outcome. Waiting in hope. And then after that, we're going to continue. We're going to go to Acts 2 and talk about the day when the Holy Spirit came. And then we're going to talk about some things related to the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, the Spirit is in charge, not us. And then we're going to talk about some other elements of the Holy Spirit, the, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit.
By the time we get to the end of this, it's all just information unless we make a decision that we really want the Spirit manifest in our lives and in our community. What do we want most? And what are we willing to do to see it done? I believe Jesus is telling us go. But I also believe he's saying, but first, wait. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have loved the people of this community far longer than I've known them. And you have visited them with your spirit from time to time and in mighty ways and great works have been done here. But, but now we face a different season, a different day, a different reality, some weirdness that we could have never imagined. And all of it has us a bit thrown sometimes. But I believe you've set us on a course this year to prepare us for an outpouring of your spirit upon us and upon this place. And it really comes down to, are we willing? So Lord, I pray by that Holy Spirit that you've promised that you will come to each one of us today and bring a conviction to our hearts that as important as anything else we do in any given day is time spent in your word and in prayer. There's other elements, but that's the one, Lord, that I feel like you are pushing today. That we would make that commitment. That we would open up that Bible on a daily basis. We would read your words. And that we would spend a moment in prayer. How are you going to open the scriptures to us if we're not looking? Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.